Welcome back to the Golden Compass series of Game Cool Books. This is episode four, Let's Play Kids and Gobblers. Wesley Schantz here. Yes, today we're clambering over the roofs, dashing up and down the streets and stairs in Lyra's Jordan. Chapter three represents a kind of beginning again to the story after that coda in chapter two, whose conclusion produces a very different effect from that of the cliffhanger between chapters one and two, and at the end of chapter three. Within chapter three, the structure is, like it says of the place, a kind of jumbled and squalid grandeur, as opposed to that intensity in medias res, focused like the lantern beam on the scenes of Lyra's infiltration and Azriel's presentation. And to consider, the overall structure of what we've read so far. Chapter 3 is as long as chapters 1 and 2 together, almost exactly. So, please bear with me if this episode runs a little long too. Brief word here about the course before we jump right in. As we go, I'm continually updating the course page, which is linked in the description, and there you can see what chapters we'll be discussing week by week. The conversation weeks, where I talk to other people, will potentially range over the whole book, and even the whole series, and embrace some other related topics of interest, though I will still try to concentrate on chapters that we've touched on so far. There won't be new readings set for those weeks, and those conversations won't take the place of commentary on specific chapters. So, on the off chance, anyone listening hasn't read the books before, you may not want to listen to the conversations in order, but instead go back to them once you've finished reading the books. And reading is optional, but mostly I hope that people do opt to read and talk about The Golden Compass with me. Each week, along with that, I also recommend other works which relate to the chapters, usually including the likely sources of inspiration, and then some of Pullman's essays or spoken addresses. In weeks three and four, I'm also putting in some images that accompany Blake's poems and Pullman's books, both since they're germane and so as to give people maybe some time to catch up on all the reading so far. I won't say as much about these supplemental materials as they might deserve, of course, but as I did with the Earthbound project, I bring them in to suggest some connections and invite more sustained reading of what otherwise might never have been encountered at all, since even a passing familiarity with such works is better than nothing. And that's just what you might have gotten in school if you went through without being assigned Milton or Blake or the Bible. Anyhow, I hope you take a look at them. Arguably, they're more fundamental to Pullman, uh, these images, that is, than even Milton and the Bible, because of how strongly they've informed how he has come to interpret those other books, and how he's fit them into his own outlook. And Pullman's outlook is essentially uh, imagistic or poetic. He's a storyteller, and a mythmaker, if you like, rather than a philosopher or theologian. Recall 
his love of the music of the poetry before he had a rigorous understanding of what it meant. And note, as we go along, his incorporation of such biblical cadences and lyrical and figurative language in his own prose, which perhaps I haven't done enough to emphasize so far, and so I'll try to dwell on his style a bit more in this chapter. But first to give an overview. We hear about Lyra's life in Jordan. We range back and forth in her childhood. We still get no explanation for how she got there in the first place, but we hardly notice. For in that time, she has so many adventures, from trying to steal and sink Egyptian ship, to planning to sail off with it the next time, to playing on the roofs, to catching a rook, to telling her uncle Azriel about that when he reveals that he has caught her, uh, saw her on the roof. Um, and she goes about telling Roger the story of the retiring room. And so either that must be after the chapters one and two took place, or she's simply lying. And it does take place before and maybe represents her having the idea to hide in the retiring room, although she hasn't done it yet. Uh, we hear about Lyra being captured by the children of Gabriel College and rescued by her friends. We hear about the battles against the townies and against the brick burners kids, about being caught by the scholars and instructed about sundry topics, interrupting classes, uh, having to talk to the intercessor, having to deal with night ghasts. And in the middle of all this, we hear about the story of Tony Makarios and the fables growing up about gobblers. Now, as maybe has become apparent, there's some confusion that enters in when you try to actually distinguish a chronology for everything, partly because Lyra is such an unreliable storyteller. Um, can we start from that conversation with Lord Asriel in chapter 2? Or need we return to that conversation with Lord Asriel a year earlier to get some traction? That's where he seems to mention the underground aspect of Jordan College. But if Lyra waits to explore it with Roger until after she's heard about the gobblers, then it seems like she doesn't act on that information until his, Azriel's more recent visit. It sounds like she didn't have an official interview with Lord Azriel and the scholars this time, but only had her uh, illicit conversation with him the one night that he was there. So somehow she must have forgotten about or had it driven from her mind the idea of exploring underground until much later. Anyhow, after that interlude, we come back to hear about Billy's disappearance, which flows immediately into Rogers. And we get then Lyra dragged to the dinner at the master's lodging. Right before that, we have the scene of the sunset. And in the chapter as a whole, we have juxtaposed 
that roof that Lyra can't reach, which is where she starts out at the beginning of the little red book, Lyra's Oxford. In some ways, that whole book is a kind of riff on this chapter, Lyra's Jordan. And this chapter contains in itself a microcosm of Pullman's story as a whole. There's this movement from innocence to experience underway already. The emblems are the loss of Roger and the other children. As before, it was Lyra intruding into the retiring room and what she saw there and heard, and then what we heard in the parting words between the master and the librarian, to which the narrator refers here. So Lyra's life had been before the day when she decided to hide in the retiring room and first heard about dust. And of course the librarian was wrong in saying to the master that she wouldn't have been interested. She would have listened eagerly now to anyone who could tell her about dust. She was to hear a great deal more about it in the months to come, and eventually she would know more about dust than anyone in the world. But in the meantime, there was all the rich life of Jordan still being lived around her. That's where we hear that the rumor of the gobblers has begun. And again, it gives us a kind of frame for the remaining time of the story. In the coming months, we're told there. But uh, we'll have to consider, by the by, this narrator as a kind of character in its own right as we go along. Along with the content of the story here, the focus on time itself gets repeated insistently in various ways including by shifts in the tense. There's also further symbols of mortality. Pullman's picture for this chapter is a skull, Memento Mori. And these join the severed head of Stanislaus Grumman, back in chapter 2. And perhaps it's stretching things a bit if we think of death as a break corresponding at the end of life to the transition between innocence and experience taking place for Lyra now. But perhaps not. We might think about how that night in the retiring room, along with the other events recounted here, exploring underground, losing Roger, we see an irreversible shift in Lyra's life, reflected in the ordinary rhythms of day and night, seasons, and pastimes in her world, which she learns in the next chapter she must be leaving, as surely as her foils Tony and Billy and her friend Roger have left. It's after the interlude about Tony Macarios, too, that the narration catches up to the present with respect to chapters one and two. We get the adventures of the Sherbert Tip and the wine, the demon coins, and the night guests. But much of Billy's interlude is told in the present tense, strangely. And then we go on to visit the Egyptians at the horse fair. And we know it must be either spring or autumn, since we've been told, but we're not told which time of year it is. We get that day narrated in detail, searching in the light of the morning, then through the afternoon, then, as it turns to dusk, returning 
for Lyra to scream on the rooftop toward the sunset. Later on, we get the impression that it must be autumn, uh, but that's not made clear. Anyway, we also have uh, news from Mrs. Lonsdale, the housekeeper. And could she be possibly the same character who's expanded as Alice in La Belle Sauvage? From her, we learn that Lyra, uh, we learn with Lyra that Roger's family name, Parslow, is the same as that of the Carpenters, who are introduced in the opening paragraph of chapter 3. There at the end, we see Lyra subjected to quotidian matters of washing and dressing, and then in a moment of terrible irony, we watch her meet Mrs. Coulter, the lady with the golden monkey. That cliffhanger, as long as the chapter is, that cliffhanger chills and pulls us along, just as this figure, Mrs. Coulter, has stepped out of one story and into another. In the game version that we're pretending to create, if you've been playing too long at a stretch, perhaps Pan tells you to rest. Now, as a reader or listener, you have the freedom to start and stop where you will, just as your attention is captivated or as it wanders. You can slip back and forth between the worlds of real life and the story. And you can choose a course to read it again and again if you like, if, like me, you find this one of your favorite parts of the Golden Compass. So to delve in and look a little more closely at a few passages in particular, now here's some of what I've found this time through, though it's by no means an exhaustive look at the riches of Lyra's Jordan. We first get Jordan College asserted as a place, as a cosmos, as an institution, over against the magisterium. Where the latter is oppressive yet vague, from what we've heard in chapter 2, the former is concrete and characterized by an exhilarating freedom, albeit one which requires constant hard work to keep in repair. Jordan College was the grandest and richest of all the colleges in Oxford. It was probably the largest, too, though no one knew for certain. The buildings, which were grouped around three irregular quadrangles, dated from every period from the early Middle Ages to the mid-18th century. It had never been planned. It had grown piecemeal, with past and present overlapping at every spot, and the final effect was one of jumbled and squalid grandeur. Some part was always about to fall down, and for five generations the same family, the Parslows, had been employed full-time by the college as masons and scaffolders. The present Mr. Parslow was teaching his son the craft. The two of them and their three workmen would scramble like industrious termites over the scaffolding they directed at the corner of the library or over the roof of the chapel, and haul up bright new blocks of stone, or rolls of shiny lead, or balks of timber." There you go, present and past overlapping, the same family in its generations working to maintain this edifice uh, within which Lyra runs about freely, quite ignorant of all the work that's gone into this place. And it would bear noting here 
a corollary to the church which is mentioned later in the chapter. Um, the church is not uniformly bad or evil in Pullman's story. Um, here's one example. The intercessor was a plump elderly man known as Father Heist. It was his job to lead all the college services, to preach and pray and hear confessions. When Lyra was younger, he had taken an interest in her spiritual welfare, only to be confounded by her sly indifference and insincere repentances. She was not spiritually promising, he had decided. When they heard him call, Lyra and Roger turned reluctantly and walked, dragging their feet, into the great musty-smelling dimness of the oratory. Candles flickered here and there in front of images of the saints. A faint and distant clatter came from the organ loft, where some repairs were going on. A servant was polishing the brass lectern. And as we'll hear, Father Heist is sounding, at least, as if he were genuinely interested. So the same kind of repairs are going on there to maintain the beautiful music, which the church, of course, has inspired and provided patronage for, among other arts. Um, the intercessor himself seems to genuinely want the best for the children and uh, genuinely hopes that they are taking an interest in all of the history around them. Uh, and it's the children who, again, in their ignorance, are quite unaware of all that's here. So, as we heard before, in chapter 2, the master referred to Barnard and Stokes as renegade theologians, which sounds to me like a great band name. They were responsible for proposing the existence of other worlds and supporting this abominable heresy with sound mathematical evidence. And in this chapter, we learn more about the greatest of all Jordan's excellences, which is its experimental theology. It was important to keep the chapel up to date because Jordan College had no rival either in Europe or in New France as a center of experimental theology. Lyra knew that much at least. She was proud of her college's eminence and liked to boast of it to the various urchins and ragamuffins she played with by the canal or the clay beds, and she regarded visiting scholars and eminent professors from elsewhere with pitying scorn because they didn't belong to Jordan and so must know less, poor things, than the humblest of Jordan's under-scholars. As for what experimental theology was, Lyra had no more idea than the urchins. She had formed the notion that it was concerned with magic, with the movements of the stars and planets, with tiny particles of matter. But that was guesswork, really. Probably the stars had demons, just as humans did, and experimental theology involved talking to them. Lyra imagined the chaplain speaking loftily, listening to the star demon's remarks, and then nodding judiciously or shaking his head in regret. But what might be passing between them, she couldn't conceive. So, we get again the difference between a chapel on the college grounds dedicated to inquiry and others that we hear about later, even that oratory where the dead are buried, um, and the other... Uh, churches and oratories which are mentioned uh, in other places, such as in Limehouse, that's where Mrs. Coulter first appears. Um, those 
kinds of chapels and uh, churches seem to be devoted to um, oppression of experimentation. Uh, and the evidence for that, of course, again, is how Barnard and Stokes were silenced. So Lyra's pride in her college is uh, without any real understanding, um, kind of like how you can enjoy a poem without fully grasping what it might be saying. Uh, and that that's really a kind of understanding in itself. That admiration, that pride, that love, perhaps, uh, are valid approaches uh, to the reality of a place or a person. And her admiration is linked to her delight in being connected to and belonging to such a grand place. The idea that dust might be among those particles that the maker has to create more worlds and that these particles are all the time in operation for those worlds are infinite. All this is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but if that's what experimental theology is about, then the process of creation seems to be ongoing. And as an example of, as Blake says, eternity in love with the productions of time. It's metaphorical for the way the imagination of a child or a storyteller or a reader vests those worlds with meaning and attention and love besides whatever mathematical evidence might be adduced for their physical existence. We'll learn more about dust as we go along. Within the jumbled and squalid grandeur, underneath the brilliant scholarship or uh, imaginary brilliant scholarship, and in between the currents of politics of which they are unaware, Lyra and Roger play and go to war with the other children. Just picking up right where I left off. Nor was she particularly interested. In many ways, Lyra was a barbarian. What she liked best was clambering over the college roofs with Roger, the kitchen boy who was her particular friend to split plum stones on the heads of passing scholars, or to hoot like owls outside a window where a tutorial was going on, or racing through the narrow streets, or stealing apples from the market, or waging war, just as she was unaware of the hidden currents of politics running below the surface of college affairs. So the scholars, for their part, would have been unable to see the rich, seething stew of alliances and enmities and feuds and treaties which was a child's life in Oxford. Children playing together. How pleasant to see. What could be more innocent and charming? In fact, of course, Lyra and her peers were engaged in deadly warfare. There were several wars running at once. The children, young servants, and the children of servants, and Lyra, of one college, waged war on those of another. Lyra had once been captured by the children of Gabriel College, and Roger and their friends Hugh Lovett and Simon Parslow had raided the place to rescue her creeping through the precentor's garden and gathering armfuls of small stone-hard plums to throw at the kidnappers. There were twenty-four colleges which allowed for endless permutations of alliance and betrayal. 
but the enmity between the colleges was forgotten in a moment when the town children attacked a colleger. Then all the colleges banded together and went into battle against the townies. This rivalry was hundreds of years old and very deep and satisfying. So we got the mutual ignorance which consists in two different kinds of knowing, or maybe unknowing. On the one hand, the kids who have not yet arrived developmentally or in terms of interest, uh, and then on the other, the adults, which have forgotten a particular childlike devotion, which the narrator insists upon. There's the importance of protecting innocence and preserving that wonder, but also the necessity of growing up, of gaining experience and allowing the next generation of children to come on into the world of warfare. And this seems to be what innocence itself tends toward naturally. But the question is, is it like Radder being tempted to its doom? Or is it like Lyra and Roger safe in the catacombs? This is the crucial issue at stake in education, in reading books, or looking at art that's appropriate to the age group, and so on. Each example in this chapter, like the theft from the fruit trees already mentioned back in chapter 2, is rich with potential significance. We just heard about stealing apples, which both Lyra and Tony seem to do, and that seems to have practically the same valence as stealing from the fruit trees. But the most immediately illustrative example here is the escapade of the narrow boat. So, the other regular enemy was seasonal. The Egyptian families who lived in canal boats came and went with the spring and autumn fairs and were always good for a fight. There was one family of Egyptians in particular who regularly returned to their mooring in that part of the city known as Jericho with whom Lyra had been feuding ever since she could first throw a stone. When they were last in Oxford, she and Roger and some of the other kitchen boys from Jordan and St. Michael's College had laid an ambush for them, throwing mud at their brightly painted narrowboat, until the whole family came out to chase them away. At which point, the reserve squad under Lyra raided the boat and cast it off from the bank to float down the canal, getting in the way of all the other water traffic, while Lyra's raiders searched the boat from end to end, looking for the bung. Lyra firmly believed in this bung. If they pulled it out, she assured her troop, the boat would sink at once. But they didn't find it, and had to abandon ship when the Egyptians caught them up, to flee, dripping and crowing with triumph through the narrow lanes of Jericho. The bung, the belief in it. This is interesting, because in Pullman's reading of this chapter, when he reads aloud in the audiobook, he gives the bung hilarious emphasis. But in all seriousness, it also sounds very much like the hint of a capital letter in dust. And it's interesting that in both cases, it's a fixed idea to remove that thing, as we learn much later. That's the church's plan with respect to dust, and we learn here that it's Lyra's plan with respect to the bung. She wants to remove it and sink the splendid ship. Unfortunately, she's thwarted. Whereas, when she's a year older and wiser, her plan shifts. It's to have a proper voyage. And, of course, she will, eventually. But not like she planned. 
So again, this combination of innocence and experience, like present and past, overlaps at all levels in the story. From her sense of possession, it being her world, and her combination of potential and actuality, she's like a half-wild cat, to the voice of the narrator itself, which mixes knowledge and simplicity. And the movement of time, which, after the timelessness of the in medias res opening, gives a kind of fairy tale expatiation here in chapter 3. And then a reflection in turn on the way that fairy tales and stories grow and spread. And now, I may be being obtuse, but the confusing part about this, again, comes in when we hear about Lord Asriel's visits, and one particular visit. Last year, before his expedition to the north, he'd gone on to say, and how do you spend your time when you're not diligently studying? And she mumbled, I just play, sort of around the college, just play, really. And he said, let me see your hands, child. She held out her hands for inspection, and he took them and turned them over to look at her fingernails. Beside him, his demon lay sphinx-like on the carpet, swishing her tail occasionally and gazing unblinkingly at Lyra. Dirty, said Lord Asriel, pushing her hands away. Don't they make you wash in this place? Yes, she said, but the chaplain's fingernails are always dirty. They're even dirtier than mine. He's a learned man. What's your excuse? I must have got them dirty after I washed. Where do you play to get so dirty? She looked at him suspiciously. She had the feeling that being on the roof was forbidden, though no one had actually said so. In some of the old rooms, she said finally. And where else? In the clay bed sometimes. And Jericho and Port Meadow. Nowhere else? No. You're a liar. I saw you on the roof only yesterday. She bit her lip and said nothing. He was watching her sardonically. So, you play on the roof as well, he went on. Do you ever go into the library? No. I found a rook on the library roof, though, she went on. Did you? Did you catch it? It had a hurt foot. I was going to kill it and roast it, but Roger said we should help it get better. So we gave it scraps of food and some wine, and then it got better and flew away. So, then he goes on. You've been all over the roof, except the Sheldon building. What about underground? Underground? There's as much college below ground as there is above it. I'm surprised you haven't found that out. Well, I'm going in a minute. You look healthy enough. Here. He fished in his pocket and drew out a handful of coins, from which he gave her five gold dollars. All right. And then we come to the present again, the retiring room, dust, the gobblers. And what's confusing about this, again, is to think that Lyra wouldn't go and explore underground immediately. Um, although maybe that's not so surprising, since, again, she seems to have so much else to do. Um, but it's easy to conflate this meeting a year ago with her conversation with Lord Asriel in the retiring room which opens the book. And part of what compounds the confusion is vagueness as to the seasons, of course, uh, with Egyptian visits, um, but also the way that this story, 
gets interrupted at this point by the introduction of the Gobblers and the interlude of Tony Makarios. So, it seems that Lyra didn't actually act upon the advice to explore below ground until quite a bit later, and nor were the Gobblers known about until after Asriel's visit when she sees him in the retiring room. Assuming she's not lying. Um, because uh, part of the reason for that, again, is that she, talking to Roger, um, says that she has been in the retiring room. Um, of course, the rest of her story is a complete fable. Um, I seen him. He was in the retiring room, and there was this guest who weren't polite, and my uncle just gave him a hard look, and the man fell down, fell dead on the spot, with all foam and froth round his mouth. He never, said Roger doubtfully. They never said anything about that in the kitchen. Anyway, you ain't allowed in the retiring room. Of course not. They wouldn't tell servants a thing like that. And I have been in the retiring room, so there. And she goes on to tell more gruesome stories about her uncle, which apparently are invented. Um, but to go back, to go back, uh, a few interesting things in her, in her interview with Lord Asriel there. Um, how she shifts the blame immediately um, when he tells her that her, her hands are dirty. Um, she says the chaplains are always dirty. Right? His response, of course, he's a learned man that the rules might actually be different uh, for nobles and servants, as we saw in the first couple of chapters, and is reinforced throughout this one. That seems to be the sort of world this is. Um, but also that the rules are different for uh, grown-ups and children, and uh, particularly for those who are learned, as Ezreal says here. Um, of course, seems quite unfair to a child, but I think makes sense if you're a grown-up. Uh, that way of seeing the world quite differently is emphasized there. And it's emphasized in another interesting way. Of course, the Sphinx, that illusion, makes you think about uh, growing up and, and uh, stages in one's life, uh, as well as the Oedipal overlay um, that you might uh, have come to mind. But also, at the end of their interview, that demon... Lord Asriel's demon laughed softly. It was the first sound she'd made, and Lyra blushed. Now, she blushed before in their interview in the retiring room as well, and it'd be interesting to kind of keep an eye on those moments when she does blush. Um, is it out of shame? Is it out of modesty? Um, these kinds of things, these little images, along with the blushing, you might watch out for wine, which is, of course, mentioned pretty frequently in this book. Um, the way that wine can symbolize anything from the intoxication of the body to uh, communion in spirit. Um, but again, that scene gets interrupted. Uh, we jump around in time, and we jump around in space as well. The interruption goes, it would happen like this. East along the great highway of the river Isis, thronged with slow-moving brick barges and asphalt boats and corn tankers, way down past Henley and Maidenhead to Teddington, where the tide from the German Ocean reaches, and further down still, 
to Mortlake, past the house of the great magician Dr. D, past Fox Hall, where the pleasure gardens spread out bright with fountains and banners by day, with tree lamps and fireworks by night, past Whitehall Palace, where the king holds his weekly council of state, past the shot tower, dripping its endless drizzle of molten lead into vats of murky water, further down still, to where the river, wide and filthy now, swings in a great curve to the south. This is Limehouse, and here is the child who is going to disappear. So, again, as mentioned, there's that shift to the present tense, um, a great uh, panoramic view of all of these uh, intriguing places which seem to have stories of their own, which are just hinted at in a few brilliant images, which the sound of the words contributes to as much as the content of what's said and the potential historical uh, allusions there. Um, it's just a beautiful passage. Um, and as we meet Tony Macarios and uh, see him, uh, like Lyra, running through the narrow streets, this and that, um, we then meet Mrs. Coulter, who's not named yet. He's being watched. A lady in a long yellow-red fox fur coat, a beautiful young lady whose dark hair falls, shining delicately under the shadow of her fur-lined hood, is standing in the doorway of the oratory, half a dozen steps above him. It might be that a service is finishing, for light comes from the doorway behind her. An organ is playing inside, and the lady is holding a jeweled breviary. Now, as important as reading is in this text, both in terms of us reading it and thinking about that, and in terms later of reading the alethiometer, there are very few instances of books and writing in the text itself, and a couple of them happen in this little interlude. Um, the breviary that she holds is one, and then her writing letters to the children's parents to let them know where they've gone is the other. The breviary, of course, stands for the hypocrisy of her behavior, both in terms of the richness of the book, which is about humility and prayer and all that, and still more the hypocrisy of her behavior, the way that she lures the children in and lies to them, the way that her beauty and kindness corrupt utterly the promise that they seem to give. Um, and of course she throws the children's letters into the fire before she leaves the way that she has come. Um, now, her movement throughout the story is kind of like a queen in chess. We don't see it very often. It's kind of behind the scenes. But sure and swift, there she is, elegant and unencumbered, seemingly, uh, throughout the story. Um, now, the way that this story spreads um, is... Uh, is very interesting as well. First, it begins in present tense. It shifts to the future tense, um, where at the end of that part, um, 
Tony will never come out, at least by that entrance. He'll never see his mother again. She, poor drunken thing, will think he's run away, and when she remembers him, she'll think it was her fault and sob her sorry heart out. It's a little over the top and sentimental. It's all in the future tense. The entire present tense, of course, is sort of conditional, right? It begins, it would happen like this. This is the way it would happen, or that kind of storytelling past where you use conditionals in English. It would be like this. Um, the rain would be falling, uh, and so forth. But more than that, um, the way the stories grow and spread in the future is a, uh, a kind of uh, fairy tale um, grows up around these actual disappearances. Um, children from the slums were easy enough to entice away, but eventually people noticed, and the police were stirred into reluctant action. For a while there were no more bewitchings, but a rumor had been born. And little by little it changed and grew and spread, and when after a while a few children disappeared in Norwich, and then Sheffield, then Manchester, the people in those places who'd heard of the disappearances elsewhere added the new vanishings to the story and gave it new strength. And so the legend grew of a mysterious group of enchanters who spirited children away. Some said their leader was a beautiful lady. Others said a tall man with red eyes, while a third story told of a youth who laughed and sang to his victims so that they followed him like sheep. As for where they took these lost children, no two stories agreed. Some said it was to hell, under the ground, to fairyland. Others said to a farm where the children were kept and fattened for the table. Others said that the children were kept and sold as slaves to rich tartars, and so on. But one thing on which everyone agreed was the name of these invisible kidnappers. They had to have a name or not be referred to at all, and talking about them, especially if you were safe and snug at home, or in Jordan College, was delicious. And a name that seemed to settle on them, without anyone's knowing why, was the Gobblers. So, there's a number of interesting things there. Uh, the connection to enchantment and fairyland, uh, as well as to uh, Swift's modest proposal, perhaps. Um, these three places, of course, fairyland, hell, under the ground, are not exactly equivalent there, but they seem to be sort of interchangeable. Um, and that's an area, that's an aspect, that fairy that Pullman will mine later when he comes to write La Belle Sauvage. Uh, that's the continuation uh, of the Book of Dust. And he'll probably do so more when he comes to release the second book in that trilogy, um, which is entitled The Secret Commonwealth, uh, a book which is about fairies, apparently. Um, anyway, the, the way that the narrator seems to... Um, talk about stories here is, is of course, very interesting as well. Um, his allusions to sheep there, and then just a bit later, when Lyra has the idea to imitate and play out the stories with Roger, um, we're told that uh, 
He was her devoted slave by this time. He would have followed her to the ends of the earth. Uh, and it's only later that these images of sheep and the ends of the earth, uh, which are parallel in meaning, uh, appear to be cliches. Only later does it become apparent in hindsight that they are actually powerful and maybe terrifying images of being uh, led somewhere that one would rather not go. Um, and so Lyra inveigles her best friend down to the wine cellars first and then later into the crypts, um, whenever it is that this takes place, right? And we're told, too, that stories about gobblers sort of rise and then fade away a bit and then rise again. So there's a similar kind of confusion as to time with that. Um, we see that they uh, discover something very interesting down there. After the distraction of playing Sherbert Tip, uh, Lord Azriel killing the Tartars, um, they go down by means of the butler's spare set of keys. Together they crept through the great vaults where the college's Tokai and Canary, its Burgundy, its Brantwine, were lying under the cobwebs of ages. Ancient stone arches rose above them, supported by pillars as thick as ten trees. Irregular flagstones lay underfoot, and on all sides were ranged, rack upon rack, tier upon tier, of bottles and barrels. It was fascinating. With gobblers forgotten again, the two children tiptoed from end to end, holding a candle in trembling fingers, peering into every dark corner, with a single question growing more urgent in Lyra's mind every moment, what did the wine taste like? There was an easy way of answering that. Lyra, over Roger's fervent protests, picked out the oldest, twistiest, greenest bottle she could find, and not having anything to extract the cork with, broke it off at the neck. Huddled in the furthest corner, they sipped at the heady crimson liquor, wondering when they'd become drunk, and how they'd tell when they were. Lyra didn't like the taste much, but she had to admit how grand and complicated it was. The funniest thing was watching their two demons, who seemed to be getting more and more muddled, falling over, giggling senselessly, and changing shape to look like gargoyles, each trying to be uglier than the other. Finally, and almost simultaneously, the children discovered what it was like to be drunk. Do they like doing this? gasped Roger, after vomiting copiously. Yes, said Lyra, to the, in the same condition, and so do I, she added stubbornly. Lyra learned nothing from that episode except that playing gobblers led to interesting places. She remembered her uncle's words in their last interview and began to explore underground, for what was above ground was only a small fraction of the whole. Okay, so sort of picks up there and, and stitches those uh, things together for us. Um, that idea that this, uh, that the wine is um, is grand and complicated, even though she doesn't like the taste, I think could be applied to some readers of Pullman's work as well. Uh, and there's no arguing tastes, of course. Um, but I hope that they would at least admit that it's grand and complicated. Uh, of course, this is a great example of experiential learning. Uh, and how dangerous that can be at times. Um, but again, uh, how 
Lyra, at least, is willing and indeed determined to to gain it, um, and uh, and so it's a kind of preliminary to the next ex adventure they have down there with the uh, the demon coins, um, and here we learn something very interesting about demons. Um, after the very cool uh, modification of the Latin to make it a plural, requiescant in pace, uh, on each coffin, Lyra was interested to see a brass plaque bore a picture of a different being. This one a basilisk, this a serpent, this a monkey. She realized that they were images of the dead men's demons. As people became adult, their demons lost the power to change and assumed one shape, keeping it permanently. These coffins have got skeletons in them, whispered Roger. Moldering flesh, whispered Lyra, and worms and maggots all twisting about in their eye sockets. Must be ghosts down here, said Roger, shivering pleasantly. Again, that idea that you can have the most awful things told in story form and have them be excellent fun. Um, because you're safe, of course. That pleasant shiver, uh, that, that's very, very cool. Um, but also, right, what we hear there is about how when people become adults, their demons lose the power to change and assume one shape, keeping it permanently, so that, they're, so that it's possible to draw a picture of one's demon at that point. One can have a fixed demon. Um, and uh, as we'll see, that's, that's crucial to the story, that shift between um, childhood and adulthood. Uh, so we've been going through a few different parallels here. You might notice the coins and how that comes up from time to time in the story, the wine, uh, the blushing. Um, another one is the idea that some stories or jokes are just too good to pass up. So we hear this back uh, before they go down into the underground. Um, so this is about Lyra's story of her uncle killing Tartars. Roger was less sure about that than about gobblers. But the story was too good to waste. So they took it in turns to be Lord Asriel and the expiring Tartars using sherbet tip dip for the foam. All right. And then after they've been down in the basement... Uh, and Lyra gets this idea that she'll play a trick on some of the dead scholars. Once she tried to play a trick on some of the dead scholars by switching around the coins in the skulls so that they were with the wrong demons, Pantalaimon became so agitated at this that he changed into a bat and flew up and down uttering shrill cries and flapping his wings in her face, but she took no notice. It was too good a joke to waste. Okay, now what is that about, to say that a story is too good to waste, or a joke is too good to waste? What would it mean to waste a joke or story? Um, it seems to have to do with playing, with playing them out, with actually acting upon them. Um, that that's part of the idea's goodness, and not doing so would be part of wasting it. I think that's pretty crucial to what Tolkien is, is all about here. Um, so I'll have to keep an eye out for things that are too good to waste. Um, anyhow, one other real interesting connection 
uh, for me at least, um, is when we come to the story of the gobblers coming to Oxford. Um, this is during the time of the horse fair, in the morning sun, and we get the idea that the gobblers are here, and sometime in the last two hours, okay, so she said, sometime in the last two hours, there must have been gobblers here. They all looked around, shivering in spite of the warm sun, the crowded wharf, the familiar smells of tar and horses and smoke leaf. The trouble was that because no one knew what these gobblers looked like, anyone might be a gobbler, as Lyra pointed out to the appalled gang, who were now all under her sway, collagers and Egyptians alike. Okay. So there we see an example of Lyra sifting through the different stories and trying to get at the truth, and that there's something to that as well as telling tall tales when that seems like a good thing to do. Um, but here, her logic about them looking like ordinary people. Um, oh dear. I think here might have just. No, it's fine. I'm sorry. Oh, Sorry. Uh, then it says, that precipitated a swarm. Now, between the image of the swarm and the logic about not knowing what you're looking for, uh, this made me think about um, the Mino, you know, Plato's dialogue, Mino, uh, where Socrates has to dispense with such arguments um, about virtue, about what goodness is the good. Uh, and I don't know if there's much more that I could uh, glean from that connection, but it did strike me, and so I wanted to throw it out there. Um, of course, one other thing that happens with stories is that people disbelieve them, and that's the case with some of the uh, boys at the market later. This is when Lyra discovers that someone else has gone missing. Um, there was a kid lost over Cowley Way, said one of the other boys. I remember now, my auntie. She was there yesterday because she sells fish and chips out of Van. And she heard about it. Some little boy, that's it. I don't know about the gobblers, though. They ain't real gobblers. Just a story. They are, Lyra said. The Egyptians seen them. They reckon they eat the kids they catch and... She stopped in mid-sentence because something had suddenly come into her mind. During that strange evening she'd spent hidden in the retiring room, Lord Asriel had shown a lantern slide of a man with streams of light pouring from his hand, and there'd been a small figure beside him with less light around it, and he'd said it was a child, and someone had asked if it was a severed child, and her uncle had said no, that was the point. Lyra remembered that severed meant cut, and then something else hit her heart. Where was Roger? She hadn't seen him since the morning. Suddenly she felt afraid. So, in her vehement defense of the story, other connections occur to her. And in her pursuit of the truth of the story, the familiar landscapes of, jo of Jordan College, of Oxford, 
all become strange. And I think that there's something to all of that in what Pullman is doing here, using this world like ours to tell his story. He's defending certain truths, even though he's making up lots of other things. Um, and the way in which he does both of those, the fiction and the truth, tends to um, contribute to the sense of the familiar becoming strange, um, even uncanny, uh, even frightening, right? Um, but in both cases here, when she confronts the night ghasts and when she confronts this fear, Pantalaimon's response is to become a lion. Uh, he roars at the night ghasts, and here he becomes a miniature lion and springs into her arms and growls. So it seems like when the fear of a story stops being pleasant and becomes earnest and uh, and scary, you know, properly scary, there is a, a response to it, which the uh, determined sort of person like Lyra, um, the one who wants to find the truth and, and find the missing child, uh, can take. And that's represented by uh, a lion-like uh, bravery. So, anyway... Um, to, to change the world that was familiar and even uh, to the point where you don't notice things anymore, right? This is also something that Tolkien talks about in his uh, fairy stories essay. Uh, so it might be interesting to make a little comparison between those at some point. Um, but uh, partly, Pullman is able to do this because he knows this area so well. Uh, this is where he went to college in the real world. Exeter College in Oxford, he transforms it into Jordan College, and he gives Lyra his own old room at the top of Staircase 12. Um, there's a few more things, gosh, uh, how we're shown again the difference of the mind and the heart here, how both are involved in memory. There is a kind of bodily, sensory uh, aspect to thought um, for Pullman. Uh, and uh, that sort of connects with the blushing thing too, right? Um, and uh, in other instances, when she shrugs because she doesn't know. Um, uh, well, Lyra shrugs uh, when the intercessor presses her about why she's going down in the crypt. Um, she uh, watches as the horse... Uh, traitor shrugs when Ma Costa is interrogating him about where her son is. Um, of course, she responds with a much different uh, answer, uh, buffeting him, whereas the intercessor sort of lets Lyra go after a while. Um, her elusive answers there are interesting to compare with the horse traders or with her own when she's confronted by Lord Asriel about climbing on the rooftops. Uh, I think we see a few different ways of, of getting the truth out of somebody uh, in each of those examples. But uh, throughout the chapter, we hear about, again, how she thinks of this as her world. And I think the last time that happens, uh, towards the end of the chapter, um, this is when she uh, has climbed onto the rooftop. So let's, let's read that passage. Pantalaimon scampered before her, flowing up the stairs to the very top where Lyra's bedroom was. Lyra barged open the door, dragged her rickety chair to the window, flung wide the casement, and scrambled out. 
there was a lead-lined stone gutter a foot wide just below the window, and once she was standing in that, she turned and clambered up over the rough tiles until she stood on the topmost ridge of the roof. There she opened her mouth and screamed. Pantalaimon, who always became a bird once on the roof, flew round and round, shrieking rook shrieks with her. The evening sky was awash with peach, apricot, cream, tender little ice cream clouds in a wide orange sky. The spires and towers of Oxford stood around them, level but no higher. The green woods of Chateau Vert and White Ham rose on either side to the east and the west. Rooks were cawing somewhere, and bells were ringing, and from the ox pens the steady beat of a gas engine announced the ascent of the evening Royal Mail Zeppelin for London. Lyra watched it climb away beyond the spire of St. Michael's Chapel, as big as fir at first as the tip of her little finger when she held it at arm's length, and then steadily smaller until it was a dot in the pearly sky. She turned and looked down into the shadowed quadrangle, where the black-gowned figures of the scholars were already beginning to drift in ones and twos toward the buttery, their demons strutting or fluttering alongside or perching calmly on their shoulders. The lights were going on in the hall. She could see the stained-glass windows gradually beginning to glow as a servant moved up the tables, lighting the naphtha lamps. The steward's bell began to toll, announcing half an hour before dinner. This was her world. She wanted it to stay the same forever and ever, but it was changing around her, for someone out there was stealing children. She sat on the roof ridge, his chin in hands. We'd better rescue him, Pantalaimon, she said. He answered in his rook voice from the chimney, It'll be dangerous. Of course I know that. Remember what they said in the retiring room? What? Something about a child up in the Arctic, the one that wasn't attracting the dust. They said it was an entire child. What about it? That might be what they're going to do to Roger and the Egyptians and the other kids. What? Well, what does entire mean? In that part, Pantalaimon then will get interrupted, much as the master will be interrupted in the next chapter. But that way of asking oneself the question to which one suspects but does not know the answer is uh, another aspect of what the demon seems to be about. And we see here that when demons speak, they speak with the voice of whatever animal they're uh, in the form of at the time. Um, so again, one's self, one's thoughts, even when they're demonic, uh, are in some sense embodied as well. Uh, as language. So the danger, I guess, is voicing those thoughts to oneself or um, potentially being unable to because events run away and one doesn't have time and one's interrupted. Uh, so we mentioned how Miss Lonsdale uh, uh, catches Lyra um, before and uh, washes her uh, in in this scene, she um, doesn't thank her for all the work that she's put her uh, to. Instead, Lyra admires people like Ma Costa and Dick, who can spit further than anyone, and doesn't admire Dame Hannah, but does admire Mrs. Coulter, as we'll see in the next chapter. Um, and again, we 
admire the people Lyra admires for the same reasons that she does, because we want to be shown favor by them, and we want to befriend them even, if it were possible, and certainly have adventures with them. And Pullman speaks about this at times in his essays and interviews, as the way that he read books. Uh, now, thinking about the, the issue of time has led me to allude to some of Pullman's later books, Lyra's Oxford and La Belle Sauvage, and the work that he's still about to publish, uh, The Secret Commonwealth. Um, thinking about time also has made it occur to me that um, maybe part of the reason that she was sneaking into the retiring room that night was just to see her uncle Asriel. Um, and I don't know why that never really occurred to me before. Um, she doesn't mention it as one of the reasons she goes in there, of course. Um, but if he was indeed coming for such a short visit, and she knew that, um, and they didn't have time for their normal tea and interview uh, outside of that, then perhaps it was because she really wanted to see him that she snuck in there in the first place. Um, we'll get another story uh, later that alludes to some of these other events, um, a story about Lord Asriel, uh, uh, killing Lyra's uh, stepfather and um, while she's hiding in a closet. Uh, there's maybe the beginnings of Pullman's idea to write a book about a flood there, um, which becomes La Belle Sauvage. Anyway, that's several chapters ahead still. Um, but since we've talked so long already, I wanted to let recess uh, do a little less heavy lifting this week um, instead uh, of the earnestness of play um, and the deadly warfare that the kids are engaged in. Uh, this is just going to be a few stray thoughts here. Um, but I thought one way to, to structure this part of the game might be to use Lyra's interview with Lord Asriel last year. Um, so the game would open uh, at this point after the strange night. The words last year would appear on screen, and you'd see that this was all a flashback. Um, it would entail uh, being captured by some agile scholar while hooting like an owl outside a classroom, and then being dressed up and spotted by Roger, and some imprintable curses would be rendered as series of typographical symbols like in a comic book. And that would be a new skill unlocked for Lyra to use in battle. And so when she's talking to Lord Asriel, each one of her answers to his question about where she goes to get so dirty um, would represent a different time of year and a different part of the place. Uh, each of these sections of gameplay would build up Lyra's abilities and her friends, uh, more so than Pantalaimon's, which we've been focusing on so far, um, and in particular, the kid's ability to throw seems to be emphasized in each adventure. So you'd be able to choose these options in any order, and the difficulty of the different parts would vary accordingly. You can choose to say that you play in the old rooms, and that would be winter time, and it would include uh, the story of Lyra being captured by the children of Gabriel College, who somehow uh, lured her there, perhaps, uh, after that alliance against the um, 
counties, you know, something like this. And then you would take control of uh, Lyra and then her friends in turn who go to rescue her by uh, pelting the kids of the college with stone hard plums gathered from the garden. Very good. Then if you choose the clay beds, you'll go on to play uh, a story taking place in the autumn where you have that alliance with the townies in the battle against the brick burners' children. And so throwing lots of mud, um, but also things like going around stealing apples from the market and maybe admiring people who can spit very far. So the third option is to talk about Jericho and Port Meadow. That would represent the springtime when the Egyptians would have last been there, assuming that it is indeed an autumn, as evidence later in the book seems to indicate, when um, these disappearances in Oxford happen. So this story would be last spring, um, when you, uh, as Lyra, lead the capture of the Costa's narrowboat, and it would involve some sneaking, along with creating a diversion, maybe involving the horses or something. And then you get to do some swimming once you abandon ship. Um, so after playing through those three parts of the time uh, and those places, then he would ask you, nowhere else? And either way, saying yes or no, will lead you onto the roofs. But I have a notion that correctly telling the truth and lying at the right times would be a way for Lyra's power meter to expand um, and to unlock more abilities for her and so on. Um, so that it would behoove the player to have a sense for when to lie and when to tell the truth. Um, anyway, that roof scene will represent the summertime. It would include the adventure of the hurt rook that they find on the library roof and wanting to reach the Sheldon building but not being able to. And uh, that would be before um, Azriel's visit for the interview, which is then taking place. So again, the game would mirror the book in this. It would sort of jump around in time. It would be a little unclear whether things happened before or after, and it would be partly up to the interpretation slash play of the player to determine that. So that scene, that final answer to Lord Azriel after playing through the other three of uh, being on the roof would end with Roger and Lyra hooting like owls, um, and, and so would lead into the interview which began this section of the gameplay, um, coming full circle in that way. It would also mean that you'd gain Pantalaimon and Salcilia's owl forms, Salcilia of course being Roger's demon, whose name we learn later. Um, and so having played through all four parts of the year of seasons, places in town, um, places where Lyra plays, we would come back to uh, hearing about the underground, and then we would finally act upon it um, after those other adventures that we've been seeing had intervened. Um, this would be the present, so to speak, of chapters one and two, the present of late summer slash early autumn, that's my interpretation anyway, when the rumors of gobblers pick up again, and when Lyra has already hidden in the retiring room, and some time has passed, and it's a rainy afternoon in the attics. That's where you'd pick up again.
um, you'd still, before getting to do that, though, and going underground, you'd still first play an interlude as Tony Macarios. And it's now that you've built up all those skills of Lyra's playing through the times of year that you'd shift over to play this other different character who lacks them. And so this part of the game would be instructive in terms of its limitation of what you can do all of a sudden. Um, Tony's demon also has only two forms. It starts as a sparrow, and it becomes a mouse only briefly before Mrs. Coulter's demon attracts it. So Tony lacks the abilities to throw or curse colorfully or climb or swim, which you've been using so gleefully as Lyra and all her friends. Um, however, Tony's sneakiness and his speed would be greater than any of the characters you've played as so far. And so you can do some little side quests with Tony, like visiting his mom and maybe delivering a letter for the soldier so that you get a look at those sentimental scenes of befuddled family love and those resonance, uh, resonant images of coins and strong drink which echo down through the book. Tony would start with very little health or power, but then he would gain strength from the food he steals and also from the chocolatel, the pursuit, after stealing the beefsteak pie would force you on your way into the, or uh, the steps of the oratory, and that's where Ratter would change and change back, and where Mrs. Coulter's music would begin to play, kind of mixed with the magisterium theme. Uh, she would accompany you to the warehouse, and like Lord Azriel, her health and power would seem effectively infinite compared to yours. And she would explain the voyage, and she would write the notes, and the scene would end with Tony and all the rest of the kids aboard ship, the camera shifting back to see her throw the letters into the furnace. At that point, you'd regain control of Lyra in the attic, the rain falling, drumming on this, the windows or whatever. You'd uh, be kept inside by that. But finally, you're back with her and her whole suite of abilities and all of Pan's transformations so far unlocked so that you can use those to steal the butler's keys and then go explore underground. First you'd play Tartars with the Sherbert Dip, then you'd steal uh, the keys, and you'd uh, have to use uh, Pan's transformations to do that. You'd descend down into the cellars and find the candles, which would allow you to be brave enough to enter the catacombs from there. If you drink the wine, then you'll unlock Pan and Salsilia's gargoyle forms. You can head down into the crypt where the bat form is unlocked by playing with the demon coins. And then that night, you unlock the lion by facing the night ghasts. Returning all the coins would boost Pan's powers. Again, doing the right thing. Uh, coming out after reaching the end of the tunnels would cue the talk with the intercessor. And he'll send Roger back to the kitchens, so you won't get to play with him again for a long while. The next day, you'd have the faithful search for Billy Costa, with Roger stuck in the kitchens. You'd meet up with Hugh and Simon. You'd have the cigarettes passing back and forth in the sun. Maybe a little allusion to Metal Gear Solid, uh, where the smoking increases your sneakiness, but decreases your health or something like this. 
you're on the way to scope out the boats when Ma Costa's voice is heard. And so you nearly fight the Egyptians again, and the dragon form is unlocked at this point for Pan to Lyman, but you team up with them instead. As her, uh, her anxiety uh, overtakes the anger, um, smothers it, turns it to alliance. Um, and you have one last hurrah running through the town, exulting in all the abilities and transformations that you've gained. And just as time was represented by the seasons in your answers to Lord Asriel, and the sense of space by that interlude with Tony, now the light begins to change as you go through the different stages of the search. As the day wanes, the Egyptians depart to be with their families, Lyra returns with Simon, but then here's another kid is missing. So she eludes the porter, asks around in the covered market, then she remembers Roger, and that would yield the mini lion form, and then the cheetah in quick succession. You'd have the scene in the kitchen, followed by the rook once you're on the roof, unless, of course, you already learned that from choosing to save the rook instead of roasting it and eating it. Um, then the canary to tease the housekeeper's demon, and she puts a bit of red ribbon in Lyra's hair. That's the first uh, equipment like that that you have acquired at this point, uh, kind of accessory. Um, and so there's a couple of side quests that we might do at this point. Um, sometime in the day before the gobblers uh, uh, come to Oxford, you can visit the chapel and overhear the conversation between Lyra and Pan about what they think experimental theology entails. Um, Pan would gain a special transformation called Star Demon, which wouldn't do anything yet. But then once you have the alethiometer, you could use it in conjunction with his mouse form to help you read it better. And then if you choose to go into the library, because along with going underground, the library seems to be one of the places Lord Asriel's questioning Lyra about, although she derails him by talking about the rook. And there, you can maybe find his papers back among the stacks. Maybe those lantern slides included in the special 10th anniversary editions, or something like that. Um, and maybe, who knows, text from other books of Pullman and things included in this course. If we could ever get the copyright, I suppose. But anyway, as we've said, the role of books is markedly downplayed in the series. Instead, it's held out that experience is the great teacher. And so um, the influence should really run from the book and from the game out into the world rather than the other direction. Um, as Lyra does, we'd want to imitate play. And so we would want to uh, listen to Pan, put down the game at a certain point, go out and play for ourselves. Um, the importance of going out and not letting the story go to waste. Uh, so the sense of time and mortality that's attested there in the uh, kind of self-awareness of doing wrong by switching the demon coins and uh, in blushing before Lord Asriel's demon. Um, I've talked about that a little bit, 
I think that the sense of space, again, is also really important here in that moment where on the roof she sees the perspective of the zeppelin moving away in the sky. Um, that's something that where, again, you would use Lyra's ability to focus attention on certain things um, to some effect in the game. Uh, besides that, um, as mentioned, transformations for Pantalaimon come thick and fast in this chapter. He gets the star demon, the gargoyle, the bat, the lion, the dragon, the mini lion, cheetah, rook, canary, and then back to ermine. Of course, we see how drunkenness uh, affects one's demon, and we see how Ratter's attention captures Tony's. Again, it's unclear um, where that line is between innocence experience, uh, body, soul, but the real question is, can the dragon breathe fire? I think so. And I think I could explain better why that is when we come to a much later chapter in the book, um, when Lyra is imprisoned in Svalbard. But it doesn't mean necessarily that the basilisk demon could kill people with a hard look, the way that Lyra claims Lord Asriel can. But... Uh, but maybe it does. Maybe that's too good a story to pass up. Um, thinking along these lines, thinking about historical figures with demons uh, is pretty interesting, like trying to think about what form Socrates' demon would actually take. It's kind of fun thought experiment, but it might take us too far afield. Um, so looking for things that uh, light up uh, subject when you're trying to teach someone. Um, we'll hear a little more about this, the way that the scholars catch Lyra and teach her things. Um, most of them she is not really interested in, um, but suddenly there's that one thing, right, dust, that she would be interested in learning if only someone were to teach her. Um, it's really interesting how, uh, as, as time goes on, she realizes that that is in fact connected with some of the things she has learned about. Um, with experimental theology, uh, if only she understood it a little better. Um, those things that are interesting and those that are not begin to cross-pollinate. And I hope that the interesting things are more um, influential in that cross-pollination than the uninteresting ones, that um, they don't get soaked up so much as, as uh, bring the other ones out better. So for any who might still be out there interested in such things. Here's a few notes on some words. And this is the last thing that I'll say here. Uh, mention the word chocolatel. So that spelling uh, seems to refer to some kind of royal drink of the Aztecs and might suggest that in Lyra's world, the Aztecs were not as dominated by the Spanish, possibly. It also helps associate Mrs. Coulter from the start with the tropics, with the south, much the way Lord Asriel has been associated with the north. Um, the name Makarios for Tony uh, seems to mean something like blessed in Greek. Uh, his name Tony, of course, short for Anthony or Antony, who's the saint of lost things in the Catholic tradition and might also be a pun on the word Tony, as in high-toned, aristocratic, elite, which, of course, he is not. Roger's name. Um, 
Parslow seems to have two possible derivations, either from an Old English uh, description of a burial mound, or from the French phrase to pass over the water, passer l'eau, passe-l'eau. I don't know. Um, so it's sort of up to you. As for Roger, that seems to go back to Hrothgar and Beowulf, like fame spear or glory spear, something like that. Rothgar becomes Roger. I, uh, I believe it. Um, the last one, of course, I forgot to mention this when I was talking about Lyra's name originally, but in Blake's poems, the songs of the little girl lost refer to her as Laika, which is very close to Lyra's name. Um, might be interesting to look at how close that character is to Lyra's character. Um, we'll have to come back to this sort of thing from time to time. I'm sure there will be lots of things that I've left out in this episode. There's just too much in Chapter 3. I think I've said more than enough about it, though. And so I will let you guys go. Go and play. <laughs>